Hey there, Kelly here. Guests on the show share so many great ideas, but how do you start putting them into practice? Well, that's exactly what you'll explore when you sign up for the podcast weekly newsletter. Each week, you'll get three ideas from past guests sent straight to your inbox. You'll explore materials, techniques, tools, concepts, and mindsets in bite-sized pieces so that you can think about them and fold them into your own practice. It's completely free and you get it by signing up at learntopaintpodcast.com slash newsletter. I think in anything that we do, we have a tendency to doubt ourselves and blame ourselves. And then we're always really surprised when somebody who's been doing it a long time has the same problem. And you're like, well, it wasn't me. It's everybody. Hello and welcome to the Learn to Paint podcast, the show where we work to answer the question, how do you get better at painting? I'm your host, Kelly Ann Powers. And this week, I'm talking with the voice you just heard, acrylic painter Melanie Morris. In the conversation, you'll discover Morris's system for keeping loose when working large, how to keep yourself from being overwhelmed when you buy flowers for painting, and so many great tips on color. Seriously, you'll want to write these down. Gloss and high gloss Patreon supporters, check out the bonus conversation with Morris. We talk ugly middle stages and how to learn from your teachers without copying them and why that will help you in the long run. As always, you'll find links to everything at the show notes, learntopaintpodcast.com slash podcast slash episode 34. While you're there, sign up for the newsletter list and get personalized suggestions for what to listen to next. And if you find yourself eagerly anticipating each new episode, consider supporting the show become a Patreon patron. You get early access and a chance to submit guest questions. You can learn more at learntopaintpodcast.com slash support. Here we go. Hi, Melanie. Welcome to the podcast. How did you get started in art? Hey, Kelly. Thanks so much for having me. It's such a joy to be here. You know, I've always loved art. I didn't major in it. My dad and he did this trying to really help me He said, you know, you need to be able to support yourself if, you know, I'm not saying you won't get married, but you're here, you could get divorced, something can happen to your husband, all sorts of things can happen. So you need to be able to support yourself in art, probably not the way to do it. So I loved art. Uh, We did it on the side. I didn't major in it. And I bounced around. I started out pre-med and got into it and thought, you know what? I really don't like blood. Probably not a great idea to be, you know, a physician. So I ended up in communications, still took art classes just along the way, and then got my graduate degree in communication with an emphasis on advertising. Worked in healthcare advertising on the account side, but always loved art. So I took a job that allowed me to work at home. And it was really an odd job. I moderated medical education conferences, and those were all at night. So during the day, I went back to school in painting, and I decided I didn't need another degree. I was going to just take the classes I wanted to take. So that's how I got back into it. And then I went from there to uh, exhibiting my work in some juried shows, sold some things that way. And then I had a, a working studio with a friend in North Carolina that we were in Raleigh at the time. So that's kind of how I got into it. And I've been painting and selling my work for about 20 years now. What did you learn going back to school from a skills standpoint that sort of helped you most? You know, it was interesting. I had always painted really intuitively. I'd taken some classes. So it was sort of just picking and choosing from the classes that I took. I had a great professor. It was very step by step. 
Uh, we covered values, we colored color theory, and she introduced me to so many artists, including a lot of contemporary artists that I was not familiar with. And she had a great way of teaching, and I tried to teach the same way. She never wanted us to copy another artist's work, but she wanted us to be inspired by it. So, you know, there may be an artist that I really enjoyed, the Bay from Area Figurative artists like David Parks, those are some I really like. And so she suggested taking the colors, maybe from a painting that he did, and applying it to my own composition. So I did a lot of that sort of thing. So that was new to me. So many of us think of a painting as just, you see it, you paint it. Mm -hmm. And it's like the act of painting. But what I hear you right. saying is the thinking about what you like and how to fold it in. And that's a little bit different. You know, it really is because I think it's more than just like you're saying, you know, looking at something and doing it. I think there's some work that goes into it before you even reach the easel. So it's really learning what you enjoy, what you're attracted to, what colors speak to you and what artists, you know, really speak to you. I think that really helps. And people may be doing it without really thinking about it, too. The other piece of it is that, especially if you're self-taught, there can just be so many gaps that you don't know because you don't know. And how great right. to have a teacher kind of walk you through some of that. Absolutely. And that's what I try to do in my classes. Classes that I do are for all levels. So I think about that when I'm going into it. And a lot of people who've been painting for a long time and selling their work, they're thinking they won't get much out of the color theory. And then they'll tell me at the end of the class, hey, you know, you taught me things that I never knew and I didn't realize this. And so I think we're always learning. Every artist can always learn. You work in acrylics. What type of acrylics do you work in? I like golden acrylics, and that's mainly just because that's what I started with. I started as an oil painter. Um, when I went back to school, I loved oil paint. I loved everything about it, the way it smelled, the way it went on the panel or the canvas. And I started getting sick. My first semester back in school, we were in this, it was a beautiful older school. The um, buildings were old, and they were small. We were a lot of people in my studio. And I started getting sick. I would have this burning in my chest and I went to several physicians. I had an endoscopy and everything was fine. So I think they were beginning to believe I was mentally unstable. You know, there's something wrong with her because there's nothing physically wrong with her. Well, during that process, we switched in the class from oil paint to acrylic. And we did that for three weeks and all my symptoms went away. So when we started back in oil paint, all my symptoms came back. And it turns out I had asthma and didn't realize it. And the only symptom I have in my asthma is a real burning in my chest. And then I may start coughing. So I cannot paint in oil. So I may have to make this switch to acrylic. And that's where that professor really came in and helped me. Uh, she introduced me to an acrylic painter whose work to me looked like oil paint. And so she said, you've got to use a professional grade paint. So she was using golden. That's how I ended up starting with golden. And then she introduced me to the Stay Wet palette, where if you're an acrylic painter, you know, the bane and the best part of acrylic is that it dries fast. So 
that's great if you're headed to a show and you're like me painting up until midnight and throwing it in the back of my car. Great to be an acrylic painter. But if you're trying to blend, that can be, you know, kind of tough with acrylics. So the more I worked in it, I used the Stay Wet palette, which kept it, the paint damp. And then I started using retarder to slow down the drying time and make it feel more like oil paint to me. But I love acrylic now. I wouldn't go back. How do you blend when you have such a limited time before everything just dries? Yeah, I think about working fast. So everything on my Stay Wet palette, it will stay wet for weeks. So I know the colors that I'm pulling off my palette are going to be wet. And I don't mix huge piles of paint. If I do, I have a second Stay Wet palette. If I'm doing a big commission, I'll have a second Stay Wet palette. If I mix a large amount of paint, I'll save it on that second palette. And I know some artists, I have another friend who mixes on a Stay Wet palette. So she's got two, one that she mixes on. I haven't found that to be a problem. I mean, my paint stays wet long enough for me to mix it. And then I'm painting pretty fast. And so if I really want something to blend, I'll have two brushes going. I'll have one brush. Maybe I'm doing a flower in the background behind it. I'll have one brush that has the flower color on it, one brush that has the background, and I may work them together. So I think I just kind of find a way to do it. I do a lot of layering where, I'll, you know, I'll put different colors on top, and it kind of all works out. For you, what palette do you mix on? I use a disposable palette. So I have my main mixture of paint is on my Stay Wet palette. I'll move it to my disposable palette, make my mixtures, and if I have a lot of extra paint, I'll save it on a Stay Wet palette, either an extra one that I have if I'm doing a big commission, or if I'm not, I'll just put it back on my main palette. And I'll do that at the end. So before, because I don't like to waste paint, how expensive acrylic paint is, or any kind of paint, before I tear off a sheet of that paper, if I have a lot of little piles of paint, I'll mix them all together and just have a nice gray that I'll end up using for something else. So I'll put that on my palette and save it. Sometimes as beginners, we will run into a problem and we will assume that we are the problem yeah. as opposed to just a problem of the media, like a challenge of the medium and that there's a tactical solution. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think in anything that we do, we have a tendency to doubt ourselves and blame ourselves. And then we're always really surprised when somebody who's been doing it a long time has the same problem. And you're like, well, it wasn't me. It's everybody. And that happens so often. I think that's why it's so important to have really a group of artist friends, preferably in the same media as you. And they don't have to be. I have a lot of artist friends who are oil painters, and we still have a lot of the same similar experiences. But it's good to have an acrylic painter or two, if you're an acrylic painter, in your set of friends, because there are going to be different things you all can talk about. And then I just like to take classes, because I think you learn something every time you take a class, especially from um, someone who's been painting for a long time. We're going to transition into process a bit. Could you walk us through your process? I mainly paint florals and landscapes. The way I approach them is a little bit different. So with a floral, I prefer to paint from life. I'll even spend some time before I buy my flowers thinking about the color story that I want to use. I don't want to walk into, say, your Trader Joe's and be overwhelmed by all the flowers. So I think about in advance what colors I'm really looking for. 
and I'll buy my flowers. I'll come back to my studio. I'll set up a little still life and I'll go ahead and have it completely set up. I'll have a background. I'll have a light. I don't like to worry about making anything up. I'd like to be inspired by what I see. So that's my starting point. And then I'll paint a little six by six and I'll time myself. Give myself 45 minutes. I'll paint a six by six. And what I find is by painting fairly fast, I'm going to capture really the atmosphere, the feel of the floral, and I'm not going to overwork it. So I think that's something that's really easy to do. You'll think, I'm going to add one more one more here and one more there all of a sudden you're like oh wish I could bring it back 10 minutes ago it happens all the time so I do my small with the idea of capturing the looseness the colors my composition and then I'll go big I find if I don't do that little small guy I'm nervous about painting on a big panel because they're not cheap and I'm thinking I'm gonna mess this up so if I have my small to look at and I still have my floral it gives me really good guidance on how to move forward. And interestingly enough, I find it is easier to get tight on a big painting than it is a small painting. It seems counterintuitive, but I think you have more space and you really feel, feel like you got to fill all that up. So that's another point where I refer back to that little six by six and I try to keep the looseness of that small painting. So that's how I approach a floral. And when I'm painting a landscape, I like to only paint from my photo. So this is a time where I will paint from a photo, but it's going to be my photo. And when I take the photo, I'm really going to stop and study the scene. I'd love to take color notes if I can. If I just have the opportunity to do that, I will. If I can do a quick little color study. Because what happens, or at least what I find happens, is you take a photograph and you lose some of those colors. So that's why I like to either take a good memory photo is what I call it, because it's amazing what you can remember. And then I'll take a photo and then I'll go back in my studio. And usually what I'll do, I'll play around with the photo. I'll think about what size painting I want to do for the final painting. And then sometimes I'll even load it up into something like Photoshop and I'll plug in the dimensions. Let's say I want to do a 30 by 30. That's pretty easy, a square or a 24 by 30. I'll load in that size and I'll really play with it. I'll look at vertical composition. I'll look at horizontal. And that's just a quick way for me to figure out my composition and what I want to do. And then I'll still do a small first and I'll try to keep, if I'm doing something that's more horizontal, my small will also be more horizontal. So I try to keep that in the same family. I'm not going to be exactly the same perhaps, but sort of similar. And then I'll paint my small, same sort of thought process, 45 minutes, paint it fast and then go bigger. And when I'm working on a landscape, I really like strong light and shadows. So I'll photograph later in the day or early in the day, and I'm looking for great colors, great shadows, and a lot of pretty light. Do you do any sort of thumbnails for either your floral work or your landscape? I do occasionally. I feel like I've painted for so long that I do it in my head. But I will occasionally, when I'm a little unsure about what I want to do, I may do some quick thumbnails and live with it for a little bit and see which one I'm drawn back to. 
what I really end up doing, especially with, well, I do this with florals too, but especially with the landscape, I'll mine a photo is what I call it. I will take one photo and I will paint it so many different ways and so many different times. Maybe I'll zoom in really close or I'll make it horizontal. Next time I'll make it vertical. So I'll really play with it. And I do a little bit of that with my florals. I may come back and turn the floral zoom in or change the angle that I'm looking at with the floral. And again, I'm, I'm liking the same things as I do in a landscape. I'm thinking about color. I'm thinking about strong light and strong shadows. Do you work light to dark, big shapes to small shapes, or background to foreground? Or how does that part of the painting evolve? I guess because I was an oil painter to start with, that I was trained to go dark to light. I always paint dark to light thin to thick and with the idea that a thin dark recedes better than a thick dark so i'm going to put in my darks first i'm going to keep it thin because the darks recede if they're thin but also i want to be able to make changes and if i get thick too fast with acrylic paint because it is plastic you're going to have edges so i try to keep it thin while i'm working through my composition make sure i'm happy with it and then i work big shapes to small shapes so i squint a lot when i'm painting. In fact, I wish, I really, if I need more contacts, I'd probably just take them out because I'm very nearsighted. And I squint the whole time. I'm knocking out detail. I'm looking for the big shapes. I'm putting in all my big shapes, breaking those big shapes up into small shapes. And I like to paint front to back, which is a little, maybe a little different for some. So I put my background in last. So if I'm doing a floral, I'm going to put in all my flowers, my leaves, and then I'm going to put in my background because I like to use that background to cut into the flowers. I love negative space painting. I feel like it makes everything a little more organic. Whereas if I'd started the other way and put in my background first, it just doesn't feel as good to me. Plus, I like to I do an underpainting a color to start with and I like some of that peeking through and there's just no way to know where we peek through if I didn't paint the way I do front to back and I do that with landscapes too I'll paint front to back and use the sky to shape up the trees and maybe if there's a house or a hill or a mountain in front of it the sky shapes it all up what I imagine you can do too is that if your background is the last, it's often very big, I feel like, for yeah. a landscape or a floral. It takes up right. a lot of space. And so it does. if it's the last thing, mm -hmm. you can say, okay, my flowers got more saturated than I expected, yep. so my background can be a little bit more saturated or whatever. You have more yeah. ability to change something that will be a big right. part of the canvas. Yeah, and that's the way I look at it too, Kelly. I like to have contrast. And if I put in my flowers first, I'll have them and I'll know what I need for that contrast. Do you draw something onto the small painting and the big painting, or, or do you go straight in with paint? I actually draw it, and I do that with charcoal. I try to keep it really loose. I like charcoal because if I make a mistake, I'll just take a little paper towel and wipe it off. Now, I used to, I would draw it with charcoal, then I would take some thin paint and do the outline again, let it dry, wipe off the charcoal. Those days are gone. Draw it with charcoal and I just jump right in. And I don't mind some of my thinner areas. You can see the charcoal underneath and I think that's cool. So that's how I like to start. I don't like to start without feeling comfortable with my composition because my thought is if the composition isn't right, doesn't matter how beautifully you're painted, the composition isn't right. So I want to get that 
right from the beginning, but I don't spend a lot of time with my drawing because what I've found, if I put too much time into my drawing, then I become really wed to it and I really treat it like a paint by number. So I keep my drawing very loose, just trying to putting flowers in the right place. I may still move them, but I want to know where they should be and then I'll go from there. Then when you say you, you work thin to thick, are you watering your acrylics down in the beginning? At the beginning, I am. I'm adding a touch of water to the dark colors. Sometimes they're drippy. Most of the times they're not. So I'm not adding that much water, but I'm adding a drop of water. But once I get into the middle part of the painting, I'm drying my brush out. I don't want a lot of water on my brush. I want the paint to start getting thicker. And I do add a gel medium. And sometimes I'll even add an extra heavy gel medium. So I'll play around with my gel mediums. I'll mix those into my paint. So you're using the gel mediums as the retarder. You're not actually using product called retarder. I'm using them both. So I use a gel medium and a retarder. How does that affect the transparency of your pigments? It might initially. It depends. If I feel like my paint is getting too transparent, I'll add more pigment. I'll make sure I'm not using too much gel medium or that will make it transparent. So I'm careful about that. So that really helps. A person just starting flowers may just think they go into Trader Joe's, get a bouquet, plop it in a vase. Done. I imagine is not as simple as that. What's important to get right when setting up the still life itself? I always recommend if you're new to painting from life that you start with a really small bouquet. You can get just a little vase, maybe four or five inches tall. Start with that. Keep your flowers to a minimal I always think about odd numbers are better than even, at least in my floral arrangements. I know florists also think like that. And when I'm putting the flowers in, I'm thinking about moving the viewer's eye around the bouquet like they would a painting with color. So, for example, if I have a pink zinnia at the bottom of the vase, I may try to have something pink to the top on the other side that's also pink. So just pulling your eye around with that color. And then I like to add greenery because the flowers need something oftentimes behind them to make them stand out. And so a nice, rich, dark green will really make, for example, a yellow tulip pop out. It just makes it much more interesting. So don't forget greenery. It doesn't have to be expensive. I'll go in my yard and get gardenia leaves or a beautiful, dark, shiny color that I love. Fern. I have I bought a fern this year on my deck just because I love fern in my floral arrangement. So I like to have a concentrated area in the middle with your bigger flowers. Then I like to have something going off the edges that's a little airier. It can even be like snaps. That's interesting or just a smaller flower of some sort or the fern or eucalyptus is a favorite. I put in a lot of paintings just because it's such an interesting shape and the colors change based on how the light hits the eucalyptus. And so that's very interesting. So those are some of the things I think about when I'm setting up my bouquet. When you also mention having a light source, why yes. is a light source important? It makes such a huge difference. So if you set up a still life and just look at it and then put a strong light source anywhere around it. You could I always go with the light that's in my studio. So if you look at my paintings, they're always lit from the left-hand side. And people think there's magic to it. They're like, oh, we need to light it from the left. No, I am going with the light that's coming in my studio. I've got floor-to-ceiling 
windows and I face west. So you can imagine I have really unfortunate at times strong light in my studio. So I will put the light with that light. So it's always lit from the left, but then I'll play with it because my favorite arrangements are the ones where I have some nice strong light on one side. But even in the dark areas, maybe there's a petal sticking out that also grabs a little bit of light. I think that's so interesting to have a dark area and then have some little spots of light where um, part of the flower is, you know, peeking up like part of a hydrangea leaf is actually in the light or a hydrangea petal. I think that makes it more fun. So I think about that. So I think sometimes you just have to see it and it's hard to show that in photographs because I've tried to photograph the difference, but it's really hard to show. But I think if you set something up, you can use just a little light you get from like a building supply store like Lowe's or Home Depot. They have little clip-on construction lights. Those are perfect. I'll clip that on to a heavy glass vase move it around or you can just stick the bottom of it in a glass and that'll work. I've got a nice stand-up light that I really like to use but if I'm teaching a workshop I'll just bring those little clip-on lights and they work really well. You can even just set it on the table. That's an interesting light source with it laying on the table and the lights coming up on the floral. So there are a lot of different options. What are the challenges you see people facing with florals? I think they're scared of them. I think people look at a floral bouquet and they don't know where to start. So I think that's where I go back to the idea of squinting and everything's a shape. Instead of thinking about painting a sunflower, you think about the fact that it's pretty round. It's pretty round. It's may vary a little bit, but just thinking about it being a shape instead of a sunflower. So I think once people break that apart when they're not thinking about I'm painting a sunflower, but they're thinking about unpainting shapes it just makes it so much easier so I think that is scary for people and for some reason mixing color is scary for people so a lot of people they'll just buy tubes upon tubes of paint and to me that's scary because then I see people dumping out their bins with all those tubes of paint and I'm like stressed out I'm like oh stop so I think once they get over the idea that it's really not hard to mix paint there's some simple steps you take to get the color you want and then you squint down, you paint the big shapes. And then what I always tell people too is the more you paint, the better you paint. So don't be hard on yourself. And if there's something you don't like, guess what? You've learned something you don't like. You won't do it on the next one. So I think it's just a process. Before you go buy flowers, do yeah. you try to have a dominant shape or are you trying to mix shapes? Or what is some of the thinking that you're doing about right. shape? I'm thinking several things. So it's a personal preference. I will not mix in Gerber Daisy with a Xenia because I feel like they're so similar, but they're not the same. I would rather have all Xenias or all Gerbers. And then like with sunflowers, there's some like the brown-eyed Susans. I would not mix that with a sunflower because it kind of looks like a weird sunflower. So those are the sort of things I think about. So I do think about getting a flower that has some mass to it, like a nice sunflower or a hydrangea. And then I may come in with something that's more of a medium mass, more like a Xenia 
Xenia or a Gerber. And then I might add something that's really interesting, a Protea. I've seen some of those like at Whole Foods, which are really interesting. Or Trader Joe's has them. They're, they're a nice dark red and they're beautiful in the background, but they have an interesting crown-like shape. So I might add something like that or something really airy, like some snaps or something that would go off the edge of the panel. So that's what I'm thinking. I want to have some hardy flowers. I don't want everything that's too airy, but I don't want everything that has too much weight to it. So those are the things I'm thinking about when I'm in Trader Joe's. And then I'll just hold them together. And I'll look at them and I'll say, hey, I really like this. And then on Instagram, I just keep a file of bouquets I like. So I follow a lot of florists. I'll keep a file of the bouquets I like. And I might look at what they put in a bouquet. There's a painting behind me. And it's a hydrangea, it's roses, and it's ranunculus. And to me, those were different enough that they felt good together. So I just think about that, what looks good together for me. So some flowers have really distinct silhouettes, but then some don't, like a zinnia or a dahlia. What do you do as a painter if the information is on the inside? With a zinnia, it's all about the light. And so I'll make sure the way I light, because I love to paint zinnias. It's one of my favorite flowers to paint. I'll make sure that the light is right on some key zinnias. So if you're repeating the flower, if you have some that are in an interesting light where there's a little bit of light and there's a little bit of dark on the flower, then people will read the rest of the flowers as what they are, if that makes sense. So if you have one zinnia that's pretty well defined, you may have just hints of zinnias behind or in the rest of the bouquet, and people will just read that. They'll have enough information to know. Now, something like a peony or a a dahlia, that's interesting. I was thinking about that this morning because people were asking me, I'm doing a a Q&A later today. They're asking me, what are the difficult flowers to paint? And my thought is, you know what? They're different for each person. So I'm never going to tell you what I think is difficult because it may be easy for you. But something like a dahlia, again, it's all light. A peony, it's all light. Because if you have that thing in full light, you lose everything about it. So I do try to turn a peony. I try to get some that are a little open. I think that makes them more interesting. And they're really beautiful to paint. But I think you have to light those thoughtfully when you're painting them. Also, that's where I can tell where squinting really comes in. Because the eye, you can look at a peony and be like, oh, there's a ton of shadows going on there. But if you squint, it all disappears and just a ball. Absolutely. Absolutely. That makes such a difference. Squinting's amazing. It's just if you don't do it, all of a sudden, if you do it, you're like, wow, who knew? Right. We fill in too much information sometimes. I just find the more I paint, the more abstracted my work becomes. And my thought process is I want my viewers to look at my paintings. I'm not going to give them all the information. I want them to bring their own life experiences to the painting, especially with landscapes. I never, I try not to anymore say exactly where the painting is. I may say, hey, these are, this is a main series or something like that. But I want people to bring their own experience to the painting and they'll have their own memories and it'll bring up different emotions for different people. So that's why I don't give all the information. Thinking about foliage, yes. foliage can be a tricky thing. How do you deal with foliage and how do you approach that 
physically with paint? I approach it just like I would a flower because I think you bring up an excellent point. You look at fern, you look at eucalyptus, you look at the gardenia leaves, all things that I like to include in a painting. They're all very different. So I just think about the way I approach a flower. So I'm squinting down. I'm looking for my darks and my lights. I'm looking for shapes. I'm looking for colors. And I think that's how you differentiate because a gardenia leaf is a really rich, darker Kelly green. Eucalyptus is more of a blue gray down green. So I really try to look at each color and make it distinctive. It's so important, again, to have that greenery because I'm taking it and maybe there's a zinnia in front. There's gardenia leaves behind it. I'm using the dark of the gardenia to shape up the zinnias. So I'm always thinking my focus is the flowers, the gardenia leaves, whatever greenery I'm using. That's the support. So they're there to make the flowers look good. And they can still look good along the way. But that's what I think about. For landscapes, what's the trickiest part of a landscape? Sometimes to me, it's the foreground because I think you can get too detailed in the foreground. And I try not to. And I try to get the foreground from the very beginning because I'm painting going back. I want to get it right from the beginning and I don't want it to be too detailed. And I've had that happen before where I've spent too much time on grass or something like that. And then I'm like, this painting is all about grass. This isn't a grass painting. And so that's something I try to really watch. I'm thinking, okay, keep it loose. We're keeping it loose at the front of the painting. So then the other issue, not issue, but thing that you have to be aware with, especially with acrylic paint, acrylic paint draws darker. And it's the bane, I think, of so many acrylic painters. And with a sky, that's where it really shows that it draws darker. So I'll try to even lighten up my skies a little bit more than I think they need to be. But I always save some of the sky color. So if I have the sky mixture, I'm going to save it on my Stay Wet palette. And I'm going to come into the studio the next day, take a look at the painting. And still, sometimes that sky is too dark. So I'll mix the color up again, thinking I'm going lighter. But I always compare it to what I've got on my Stay Wet palette. Because I can't tell you how many times I've mixed the exact same color. So I've got it. And I'll say, okay, it's still not light enough. I'm like, and I'll be talking to myself, are you sure it's not light enough? I'm like, yes, no, it's not light enough. And the sky needs to be right on the landscape. That's where your light's coming from. So I think that can be a little tricky. Yeah, I paint in acrylic and have for years. And then an artist in one of these interviews said that it dries darker. And I was like... Did I know that? <laughs> like, I've been painting in acrylic for, I don't know how many, five plus years? It's, oh, that explains everything. Doesn't yeah. it? Because you'll leave the studio and it'll be so good. You're like, this is like one of my best paintings. You'll come back the next morning. You're like, what happened? So I let a painting dry overnight. And then I'll come back. And a friend of mine came up with this term. I'll add zingers, which is pretty much when I'm painting a landscape or I'm painting a floral. Almost every color I mix has a little bit of the complement in it until I paint zingers. So zingers are just more pure color, no complement in it. It's pops of light. I use them sparingly. But I will do that the next day. I'll look at what's dried down and I'll be like, no, that petal's got to pop a light on it. And I'll go ahead and put it in. It's always a little scary to put it in because I'm thinking, that is way too bright. But I let it dry down. I'll see what happens. I can always take, get rid of it. And that's the great thing about painting in acrylics. So you can paint over it pretty fast. In your landscapes, how do you create a sense of depth? So in my landscapes, when I'm trying to create depth, I think about 
colors that come forward are warm colors. So I think about keeping my colors toward the front very warm. And as my colors or as my landscape goes back, I cool things down. And then also to make things go back, I gray things down and I lighten them up. So those are the three things I'm thinking about to push the landscape back. I'm blueing it up, I'm graying it up, I'm lightening it up. And I'm also losing detail. So the further I go back in a painting, the more detail is disappearing. So when something is trying to come close in the foreground is when I do add more detail. And again, that's, I think, why it kind of throws me off sometimes there at the beginning. I'm thinking, am I adding too much? I know it's coming close. Do I add more detail? These are the conversations I have in my head. But yeah, so I think about coming forward, it's going to be brighter. It's not going to have as much of the compliment in it. And it's going to have a little more detail and warmer. And I guess those kind of fall into the category of atmospheric perspective. How much of that do you use in your floral work? Like, will the pink rose in the front be more saturated? It will be. For the most part, it will be, especially if I'm trying to push a flower back. So say, for example, I've got a sunflower on the right side of my bouquet. We'll put that in with a little more detail, a little more warmth to it. And then if there's a sunflower peeking out that's sort of from the back of the bouquet, you're going to see that more muted, less detail. It may just be a hint of a gold in the back of the painting. So I'm thinking about that just like I would approach a landscape. And then with my background, I almost always gray down my backgrounds a bit when I'm adding them to a floral because I want the star of the show to be the actual bouquet instead of the background. So I do gray that down. So it's there, but it's there to complement the flowers. So for a background, are you ever worried about having a dark color in the background of a floral next to a light background? Or how do you deal with that? I don't worry too much about that. So when I'm approaching the background of a floral, what I usually think about is on the side that's lit and lighter, I like contrast. So my background may be a little darker. And then on the side that's darker, I may lighten up my background. So I'm just thinking of contrast to make these flowers really the stars. And then if I have a darker flower against a light background, this is when I may take two brushes, have one brush with my background color, one brush with my flower, and I'll work them together and then always wear gloves because I like to finger paint and I will just smush them all together. So they'll still be pushed back because the edges won't be really defined and it doesn't bother me that there's a light and a dark together. I think it's interesting. So we're going to move into color a bit. So what is the mood you want in your work? and how do the colors you use and the values you use help you get there? I like work for me that's joyful and happy. I had one friend who was talking about it. She's like, somebody show me a piece. I said, is this Melanie? She goes, that's way too dreary to be Melanie's work. I don't like dreary. And so I'm going to have some happier colors. And that's the feel that I hear from people when they see my work. They say, your painting makes me happy. It brings joy to my home. And that's my desire. So with my colors, I never paint with black. Black does not reflect light. And so I can achieve a beautiful dark with phthalo blue green shade and alizarin crimson. It's a lovely dark. And I don't use a ton of grays. I like grayed down color. I'm not going to use a concrete gray. There's probably going to be a little touch of color. It's going to be a pinky gray or a green gray. So I'm thinking about that when I'm painting. I like to use colors that are uplifting and joyful. The idea of mixing bright colors can seem really easy, but it's actually more complicated. How does someone mix bright colors? 
So when I'm thinking of bright colors, I don't want to use all bright colors on my panel because I feel like what happens is if you just throw a lot of bright colors at a panel, they lose their impact because it's like walking out into a sunshiny day where you can't see anything. So I like to use muted colors in addition to my brighter colors. So I'll start with a more muted color palette and then I'll add my brighter colors. So my brighter colors, just the way I read that is they have less of the complement in it. So pretty much everything in nature that I paint is going to have some complement, a touch of a complementary color in it. And then as I start to get toward the end of a painting where I'm getting brighter and I'm really trying to capture the light, I'm going to use less of the complement. And that's how I'll end up with some brighter colors. When I just think about how powerful a more muted color is next to yeah. a slightly brighter color is, when I just think about that, it doesn't feel like it would make much of a difference. But yeah. Boy, does it make a difference it in a does. painting. It truly it does. And it's something that it sounds like it would make a difference, like you say, but then when you do it, you're like, oh, wow, yeah, that makes perfect sense. And then those muted tones can also do what we were talking about earlier. It can push things back. It can help a flower turn the corner and go to the back of a flower. And then the front of the flower is a little brighter. So that's some ways you can really achieve shape. When you're doing a piece, your floral work, do you bring up the entire painting let's say the bouquet itself at the same time or do you bring up one flower at a time? I'm very much of the belief that I work around the whole panel and the reason I do that I've done it the other way where I've painted one flower and I've got it you know perfect I'm totally wed to this flower and then I go to add another one and guess what that first one's completely wrong and then I'm trying to make the rest of the painting fit this perfect flower and it's a mess so I don't do that now I paint all around the panel and in fact I'll stop myself if I'm concentrating too much on one flower I'll make myself step back re-examine where I'm going and try to paint the whole painting at once or at least the floral part and then if I put down a color I want to use it a couple of more times in the painting so I'll think about maybe putting if I put a little pink on part of a zinnia trying to find a little bit of that pink maybe on the edge of a snap and on the edge of the bottom of the glass vase those sort of things where your eye just really travels all the way around the painting. Also what I hear you saying a little bit is that there might not be that pink on that vase that you're looking at, but that's the fun of being an artist. It is, it is. And I always consider, absolutely not, there's not, it's not there, usually. So I consider the edge of the glass, the bottom of the vase, the waterline, those are all places, the lip of the vase, those are all fun places. I can use some hints of color because I'm not a photorealistic painter. I am more abstracted in the way I approach my painting. And so I feel like I have that freedom. I may even take a little bit of that color and put it along the shadow line. Now I will try to think about if I do that with a shadow line, I'm going to think about using a cool color. So I am going to think about that. But yeah, it's fun. I just try to keep it, you know, something I really enjoy. I think that's one of those things too that develops with skill. A beginner, you don't know that because you're still just trying to figure out this green plus that red equals this neutral. But then when you've been painting well, that's the places you can really start to play. Yeah, it truly is. And I feel like that's where you really can grow in your work and really develop your own style. People start to expect that and they look for it and that's fine. So thinking about building up those flowers again, do you lay in, so you're starting with your darks, dark neutrals, and then you build more saturated as lighter? 
I'm thinking of the actual flower color. So if I'm painting a rose, I'm thinking about the color I actually see inside the rose. So if it's a white rose, I may start with a gray, like a cerulean blue and an orange and some white, but I don't want it to stay gray because I don't like to use grays in my flowers. I feel like it looks a little dead. So I'm going to add a touch of color. So usually there may be, maybe it's a touch of peach. So I add a little more orange to it. And that's going to be the center of my rose. So I'll probably block in the entire rose, just squint down, get the shape, block in that darker color, and then lay in the petals on top of it. There really is for every subject matter. So we're talking about flowers here, but it can be true for a barn. It can be true for trees. Yeah. There is this way of you have to deconstruct the process and then put it back together. Yeah. See that with trees? I love to paint trees and I'll blob them in. So it's a big blob maybe of green and then I'll break it up into smaller greens and then I'll use the sky behind it to shape up the tree. So I think it makes it look so much more organic than if you did it the opposite way with the sky and then plopping leaves and tree down. So I think it's also more fun. I think it's a challenge to do it that way and it keeps me really interested in a painting. Also if there's painters approaching a subject and I, I guess not the subject but like specific objects in yeah. the subject that if you don't like how it looks there might be a totally different way to paint it absolutely I think that happens so often one of the things thinking about like bright colors white brightens but it also neutralizes how do you handle white so there are a couple of ways I approach using white so when I add white to a mixture it cools it down and that's a problem if you're painting flowers and you've got some foliage and you want it to be a lighter green. But if you add just white to your pretty warm green, it's going to cool it down and it doesn't look right. So what I usually do, there are a couple of approaches. So what I usually do is add a touch more yellow to warm it back up. And so I just keep that in mind. Whenever I add white, it's going to cool things down. And then I try to warm it back up a little bit. I've also used some zinc white and I'll use that especially in my landscapes. I don't use it as much in my florals, but if I'm painting a landscape and there's a lot of green in the landscape, I'll definitely use some zinc white. It's slower to lighten your color, but it doesn't make it chalky. It doesn't cool it down as much. I'll use that with water too. I did a lot of big sur paintings and I used a lot of zinc white because you don't want concrete for water. And if you use something like zinc white, you can really layer it and it feels more watery, if that's even a term. But <laughs> that's what really works well. And also for the green, you don't want, you've seen those paintings, you're probably on vacation, the beach and the ocean is like this weird chalky color or the hills that are green or chalky. It's too much titanium white. If they had tried a zinc white, it would have worked a lot better. Well, then do you have a color that is tricky for you? And then how have you learned to work with it? I think that yellow can be tricky because if you darken it up with purple, using a bit of the complement, sometimes it can go really ugly brown on you. So I try to be very careful and add colors very slowly to yellow. So I'm thoughtful about using yellow. I think whites can be tricky. So when I'm painting like a white rose, I think people are concerned about where to start. I'll usually, like we talked, I'll, I'll start with a gray and then add a little color to the gray and then add my, a lot of white to it. And that's my starting point. So I think white can be tricky. I think yellow. 
And those are the colors, that two colors I use. So I use a Hansa yellow opaque. I use an oxidine purple. And that's where I'm really careful. I use just a little bit of the purple. It doesn't take much. It's a really strong color. And that usually works. But I try not to get that, you know, that, it's that ugly greenish brown that you can get pretty quickly. Then what's the biggest challenge you see your students facing with color? We do some exercises where I initially called them grays because we're mixing the complements, but they're truly not grays because we're not using the exact colors in the color wheel. So then I was calling them colorful grays, but that still didn't work because people were like, I'm still not getting gray. So then I went to muted tones, formerly called colorful grays, <laughs> and they seem to get that. But I think it's mixing grays. A lot of times people, when they mix the complements, they'll end up with a brown. So if you're making my favorite gray, which is Cyril and blue and orange if they do half and half cerulean blue is a really weak color and so you get a brown every time you've got to add more of the cool color so they've even come up with the class i've got right now they're so cute they have a little motto if it's brown cool it down so they know <laughs> I'm afraid they're going to put it on t-shirts with my name around it somewhere. But I think that's probably the biggest issue is how to come up with a gray and they get a brown and they stop. And I think people don't realize, especially who are new to mixing color, that it's all proportion because you can keep adding a lot of blue and you're going to totally change the look of that color. And that's with every color. And so when I'm mixing color, that's something I always try to point out to students is don't try to change a whole pile of color. Just pull some off to the edge and add a little bit of color to it because you're going to get frustrated if you've got a big pile of color and you're trying to change that big pile of color. You're just going to keep making more and more color. So pull it off, work with smaller piles or puddles. You'll go back and use that other paint. I haven't thought about that because we're talking about ratios too. Like in our mind, going back yeah. to kindergarten, think purple is half red half blue but that's not the case necessarily no, you're right absolutely absolutely it's all proportion you mentioned earlier in the interview about one of the things that when you see a student show up with a pile of color how does having a ton of colors actually keep us from learning color Oh, that's such a good question. Because if you have all these tubes of color, it becomes stressful because you've got to think, well, I've got to just, I've got to squirt out all the colors I need. I can't do anything. So you're really limited. You're a little stressed out because you don't know what colors to use. And your painting's not going to hold together as well. So if you're mixing your own color, you have a lot more control. You're going to save money and your painting's going to hold together. Plus, you're going to start to establish your style. So if you look at one of my floral paintings, you look at one of my landscapes, they're from the same artist because you're going to see a lot of the same colors and that becomes part of your signature. So I think if you really, a lot of people, that's something I hear from so many students there, they want to find their own style and they don't know how to do it. And I think that's the first step, mix your own colors and stick with the same palette. So figure out the colors that work for you stick with it. And that way you start to develop your style. If someone came to you and said, I want to get really good at painting, what advice do you give them? I would tell them to try to paint. I know it's hard to paint every day. So say for one month, you're going to paint four times a week. Take some small canvases or panels, number them, 
say if you're doing four a week for four weeks, you've got 16 canvases, number them one to 16. And you can, for each week, you can use one little floral, set aside 45 minutes, put it as an appointment in your date book, and do those 16 paintings and look at the comparison between where you were at one and where you were at 16. And I think once you see that development, you're going to try to schedule in painting time because really the, I always tell people painting is, yeah, it's a talent, but it's also a skill. And the talent, I think if you're interested in painting, if you're drawn to it, if you love color, you already have the talent. You may not call yourself talented, you already have it. So the other part of that is skill and skill comes by doing it over and over again. You can learn more about Melanie Morris, including her workshops at her website, melaniemorrisart.com and on Facebook and Instagram. And we'll link to everything in the show notes. Thank you so much for being with us today, Melanie. Oh, thank you, Kelly. I so enjoyed it. It's been so much fun talking with you today. Thank you. Thank you for joining me this week on the podcast. Head to learntopaintpodcast.com slash podcast slash episode 34 for show notes. While you're there, sign up for the newsletter and get more ideas on how to get better at painting. And if you like the show, consider supporting it. You can learn how at learntopaintpodcast.com slash support. And speaking of support, thank you to everyone who is supporting monthly through Patreon and to High Gloss supporters Andrew Atterbury, Debbie Miller, and Janet Wheeler. Happy painting!